Okay, hello again, everybody. This is, we're going on at such a pace with these, it's unbelievable. I did not know what we were starting when we started this. Um, so, as ever, two papers, paper Q&A, paper Q&A. Um, thank you for everybody that's been donating on Patreon and sending us uh, donations to Ticket Taylor as well. It's amazing, and I am ordering badges for you all this weekend, which is really exciting, really beautiful enamel badges. Um, as ever, you're all on mute now, but if you want to say something, use the uh, put your hand up function on Zoom. If you go into the participants thing, it's there, or put a question in the chat, and Nick and I will be looking at that as we go through. Um, and then we can come to you and you can unmute yourself as well. The people who are giving the papers today will share their screens with us. You don't have to do anything, just sit back and relax, or just change what you see on the screen. Um, and yeah, I think over to Nicola. Nicola, you need to unmute yourself. Got it. Hiya. So a bit hopeless this week because I'm on day three of being immobilised with back pain. So I told, told you last week that I'd lost my auntie and I was really struggling with whether to go to Newcastle for her cremation or not when my dad was giving the eulogy. And I weighed it up like a million times. I asked about someone giving me a lift there. And like, and then just before I was due to go, uh, my colleagues said, oh, the trains are empty. As long as you, you know, clean and everything, you know, do your hands and everything, you'd be fine on a train. So I was kind of weighing it all up, just feeling kind of miserable. And I just thought to myself a couple of days before, I'm going to ask for a clear sign from the universe. I came down on the morning of the funeral, which was Thursday, went to fill my kettle which was empty so not heavy and just a, a lightning shooting pain hit me in the lower back and everything has been hurting ever since so the universe spoke very clearly and my husband is laughing that my internal immobilizer went on instead of uh, allowing me to to risk traveling around but I must say it does put um the prime minister's special advisor in a certain light given that he did a very similar journey for much less uh, existential reasons bastard so um so that was just a long-winded way of me saying that i haven't done my usual introduction um but also how could uh, an introduction um cover the absolute majesty of heilbronn and jansen we've had several pieces from them over the years and they are I mean, I noticed actually, Cara, you had said that there were two tour de force papers. We say tour de force all the time. <laughs> it's like we're all soloists and no, uh, no B-side. But uh, absolutely, Rosalind and Ruth's papers have just been a high point ever since Lincoln, where they did the first one. So um, they talked about uh, educational attainment and would the divergent um, educational uh, results of Lily and Freddie have diverged and dug into literature about bereavement and twins and it's absolutely sensational. This morning they have for us another of their classic offerings but I will let them explain the setup because they do it so much better than I do. Mwah. If you both want to unmute and then start the presentation. It says host disabled participant screen sharing. Oh, right. Now, this is one of those lovely things where uh, Zoom will just update all the settings without telling you. 
So I am going to make you a co-host and that should enable you to share your screen. I'll press share screen. Aha. Uh -huh. Brilliant. Uh, but I can't find my, for some reason. Hang on. Aha. Uh -huh. There it is. Right. We're nearly there. Nearly there. Oh, beginning. We've got you. Oh, sorry. Got to go back. Uh, previous. Get rid of this thing. And off we go. So, um, I'll give you a trigger warning. We'll see pictures of some Archer's characters taken from the BBC website. Warning. Uh, our reason for choosing these characters is that they're approaching later life, being born in the late 1950s. And we've used some pro projections onto the 2040s, so 20 years hence, to tell this story about care provision based on current situation. So these are the characters. We've got Kenton and Shula, the twins, born in 1958. Hazel Woolley, born in 1956. And these will be our guide to the kind of care that Ambridge residents might uh, expect. So there are three main options for care currently. One can have be lucky enough to have one's own family and stay in own home, or stay in own home and finance care coming in, but that's quite expensive, or have a care home, and these, as we know, range from very basic to quite upmarket. So now here's some of the history. Um, the key points being, you can read it on the screen, but the move from the workhouse to the idea of the state providing care from cradle to grave. And then we've got the well-known factors which take us to the present day, uh, the concern about the quality of community services, the different providers, austerity, the growing role of the public sector, and the increasing charges um, the, if we had to restore provision to 2014, uh, to, sorry, to 2010 standards, we're looking back 10 years before austerity, before COVID, it was 14 billion. And we've also got the Brexit factor for care workers to factor in. Now, what Boris said in his first speech as Prime Minister, we will fix the crisis in social care once and for all with a clear plan. However, there is no plan. And the Queen's speech in December uh, only promised that the government would reach a cross-party agreement. And there is an emergency, although this is pre-COVID, fund of 1 billion to keep things going a bit longer compared to the 14 billion stated to restore provision to 2010 standards. We have had funding poured in, but that's only covers COVID. So 2020, we've just had a little look at uh, 
what's happened subsequently. And uh, there's a quite a good report on the King's Fund. After four decades of policy initiatives on integrated care, COVID-19 has exposed once again the deep-rooted differences between the NHS and social care, even though their undisputed interdependency will be tested to the limit in the days and weeks to come. So what does this mean? Uh, what did it mean pre-COVID for Shula, Kenton's and Hazel's generation? A large-scale study published in October 2019, so just last October, in The Lancet, which, which was done in 2018, together with ONS statistics, reminded us that there were 1.6 million people aged 85 years and over at that point. And by 2043, 3 million are projected. And the reasons for this are the 1950s baby boomers would reach 85 plus, and there are increases in life expectancy. So if we look at first option for care, so the, just to remind me, boxed up there shows you the three options for care, and each of those characters will represent one of those options. So up in the corner there of the uh, of your screen, you see a picture of Fallon happily strumming on her guitar. How about Kenton in the 2040s? Well, Kenton now has compromised mobility and he needs quite a lot of personal care. And that's Jolene. And um, well, she, she tripped over an amp lead in her 2022 tour of the West Country. And she's had a dicky back ever since. And Kenton's daughter, as you know, she's in New Zealand. So not much help from her then. So it falls to Fallon, who's uh, the stepdaughter, um, Kenton's stepdaughter, in order to, to give them the care to look after them. Now, she is one of what's called the sandwich generation. And the pictures at the side show Fallon and Harrison's two children. Here she's with her teenage son and her daughter and their first granddaughter, grandchild. So Harrison has done well in his career, but living costs are rising and Fallon is working flat out in all her various ventures. She's creative, as we know, with her upcycling and so forth. And she doesn't do things by heart, so she's stretched. And in this, she's not alone. One in four female workers and one in eight male workers have caring responsibilities currently. The ONS tells us a lot about this. <laughs> There's, uh, there you go. 1.6 million people aged 85 years and over by mid, oh, well, I told you that, sorry. This chart from the Lancet report gives the current stats on working people with their ages caring for relatives. And you can see that people between 50 and 70 are doing most of that caring. 
So Rosalind, I'm going to hand over to Rosalind. There might be a little hiatus. Rosalind's going to take us through option two and option three and our other two characters. Good morning. So, um, I will, are you able to? Yes, I'm unmuted. And are you able to, are you going to click through? Uh, okay, no, so you're going to click through the slides. We'll be fine. Um, good morning, everybody, and thank you very much um, for that splendid introduction, Nicola. Um, Ruth, you need to go back one, please. I do. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm going to have to have a horrible... A horrible yeah. Oh, sorry. sorry so, sorry. As, as we've learnt, um, Kenton is lucky to have Fallon, but we're now moving on to Shula. And Shula is lucky that she has the equity to release from the stables. But the problem is that Dan's inheritance could slip away because the current cost of care is averaging about £15 an hour. And we would like to make the point that that, of course, is not what the actual workers get, most of whom work for agencies. And if I can just add an aside here, um, I happen to be one of those workers. And what I would earn is approximately £9 an hour at the moment. Um, now, Shula at the moment is fairly independent and she only needs four hours of care at the moment um, when she first releases the equity. But that's still going to cost her about 420 um, per week, which will come into um, 2K a month. Uh, Dan is resigned at the moment, but what if Shula is going to need more? So what will happen if she needs nighttime care, for example? So then the costs are absolutely going to shoot up at this 15 pounds an hour. If we multiply it by 12 hours a day, this is going to equate to 180 a day and 5,400 a month. So you can see how it would escalate. As a vicar, Shula might have the benefit of the Church of England behind her, but no, this is not the case. It's no longer an option in 2014. Um, what you see here has continued to happen across the board and the C of E no longer has any care homes at all in 2014 to accommodate Shula. Here are the current figures regarding individual fees. Now, as you can see at the, the top, somebody who has over 23,250 has to pay the full care fees. And at the bottom, somebody with less than 14,250 will have the fees paid by their local council, less of course deduction from income. And the one in between is telling us that people 
pay proportionately to their financial status. We are now coming to our third and last case study, Hazel Woolley. And as you all know, Hazel has inherited wealth from her father, Jack Woolley, and she can afford the most upmarket care home in Ambridge, the Laurels. And this is one, the one, of course, where Jack was at the end of his life. <clears throat> Hazel has the money she has inherited but very unfortunately, like her father Jack, she too now has advanced dementia. And as you can see, there is a predicted rise in the number of people who are going to have dementia by the 2040s. The general guide to care costs for people like Hazel who are going to need 24-hour intensive nursing care is approximately 1,000 a week currently, uh, which equates to 52K a year. Hazel can afford a good care home at the Laurels but we all know that there are great variations ranging, as it shows you here, from neglect to abuse to the contrary. We now come to our update. Ambridge, 20 years on, still remembers COVID-19 in 2020. What happened was that thousands of residents in care homes died. Many care homes went under. Residents were forced to move to alternative accommodation. And in our great fantasy, we have suggested that Boris Johnson's government were forced to appoint a commissioner for older people to ensure the safety of care home residents. And this much loved resident of the Laurels became ill. We are now asking you to tell us who it is. Please use the chat box immediately first person to come up with an answer. Auntie Christine. Now, who was that? Um, Lloyd, Nikki Lloyd? Excellent, absolutely spot on. Here is Christine Barfield as Christine Archer in the kitchen of Brookfield with her mother, Doris, in the 1950s. Excellent. So Ambridge has options for care, but it is Ambridge. Ambridge is the place where people generally age with dignity. 
we've only got to look at Joe Grundy, Peggy, and Jill, just to take those examples. Um, a specific case, if we go back to Christine um, Barfield, is that she was able to calm down Jazza when he freaked out at Jim's ghost readings. So a clear case of age and experience versus callow youth. The conclusion then is that all in all, Ruth and I believe that Ambridge is a good place to age successfully. And we will now leave you with this happy ending. Thank you for your attention. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Lots of rounds of applause there from everybody. Thank you very much. It's going to be interesting, isn't it, when we come back and uh, how COVID will sort of test, will prick that Ambridge bubble of reality. Um, not to say, you know, Ambridge the Archers does deal with very, very real issues. But, you know, like the microclimate, like the Ambridge fairy, there's aspects of it that test our patients. And ageing and how to age is going to be really interesting, I think, when we come back. Because it's not, I don't think it's something we'll be able to gloss over, particularly when there's been so much attention on care homes. Mm. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think, so if you think, we've had a rich vein of form on this as well over the years. So we believe from uh, Catherine, Catherine Runswick Cole's work that they underplay disability and chronic illness and use illness as a narrative prosthesis for other to you know, cast light on, um, on character defects. So like when Rob was disabled briefly because Helen had stabbed him and all that kind of thing. So there's that because um, there is, you know, sort of poor health and aging are a feature of, of older age. But then if you think of Bronwyn's paper from last week about the conditions of retirement, she pointed out very clearly that, um, you know, actually they're very active right into their ninth decade in terms of like, you know, still being very active in their, in their family businesses and farms well beyond kind of normal, normal, you know, state retirement ages. And then this links me again to the things that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, which is the state doesn't show up very strongly in the village, you know, so people don't do things because you know, like, you know, Pat, for example, could be a waspy woman. I mean, she's self-employed, but the, you know, this is the point, the point stands that the, boot, the baby boomers, um, and I don't think that, the, the, I mean, Kenton and, um, and that generation are in late middle age. You're absolutely right. It's just going to be so key in the next, you know, God, we'll all be listening 10, 20, 30 years. Hang on. Everybody in the chat is deciding that they're going to have communal living in retirement. And I can only go, Jesus. Good point there. Where was it? Uh, Pam Davis. Very few people in Ambridge have external jobs from which they can actually retire. That's true. Farming is a, is a life. It's a whole, it's a whole a life job. thing. Yeah. 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 But, all, but that's why then the link to to illness or infirmity is so total right because as I say you're getting kicked by your bull or whatever or whatever what did Brian do to get his epilepsy I don't know was that karma 
<laughs> it was. And then that, and then, and of course, you know, the other the other thing is is that um, the farming community have both specific features in terms of their um, morbidity and mortality rates, because obviously there's a lot, a lot of suicides in the rural economy, as I was talking about last week in Cumbria, you know, dairy farmers losing their livelihoods and three in a very small area had committed suicide rather than kind of face the sort of end of their, their dairy um, herd. Right, ageing without children, Rachel Daniels, is so much what? Brian was kicked in the head by Joe's cow. Yes, Jim, I might have known Kate would be picking yes. us up on, 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 the, on the trip. I mean, Kate's quizzes, if you haven't seen them, do find them on Twitter because they are fiendish. And she's always incredibly accurate with her archer's knowledge. Let's just, let me just, um, is there anybody who'd like to ask a question? Um, if so, can you signal that you, you want to, I can't see the chat at the moment. Chat 37, bloody hell. I like the fact that Karen Pollock and Gary are discussing structural oppression. That's, that's always a good thing. Oh, aging without children is slower, says Rachel Daniels. Can you say anything more about that, Rachel? Not just that you age much more quickly if you have children, I suspect. <laughs> there, is, there was a study done that those that live in cities age slower than those that live in the countryside. Like Sarah cities have to have their wits about them and there's more cultural stimulus in very broad terms was the result of that study. So yeah. <laughs> exactly Sarah Playfair. Big thumbs up to that one saying here. Um, I was just thinking yeah, I, I think saw... on, I think of my middle middle aged friends that have got teenage children. God, you know there is a the, the 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 kids do bring their sort of people you do feel useful when you hang around with teenagers i mean you feel like you'd rather be dead than a teenager again is one thing i reflect but you know they do there is a sort of refreshing element of the the youth god it sounds like i'm 900 <laughs> I'm going to need to hang around with teenagers longer. I usually scarper within three minutes, like some sort of cat near a toddler, uh, and, and disappear. <laughs> Aging with parents. So, um, so having said that, the only person who's absolutely nailed on for the well, also Christine Barford. She's partly her her care is partly being subsidised, isn't it, by Peggy Woolley? Mm. Um, well, here's an interesting point. So. We've speculated on some of those characters that may not survive COVID, or whether we, you know, in a very dark humour sense, we wouldn't, you don't want them to. But what businesses are going to survive? So when that shot came up of the stables, it's like, is that a viable business? People aren't necessarily going to be out riding, you know, getting their pony lessons in and what have you. So what happens if Sheila's business goes? The pub has been in real problems, and Peggy has bailed it out. Is Peggy's uh, money pit bottomless, or is are some of the businesses going to go? In which case, the retirement plans, those little nest eggs, are going to be very, very different. I just think also backing away from a destitute Christine Barford because <laughs> I don't really get back it. Back away, back away. <laughs> we don't know what they were doing with all that because she was hoodwinked by Matt, but in a sense, like well, Ambridge Fairy style she um, didn't really suffer the consequences that you would suffer if you lost your life savings. Which yeah. would be, you, you would age in less comfort than you had planned for. 
Yeah. <laughs> it did confuse me. Like, this much love resident. I was like, well, I can't be Christine. It, but, uh, it, it's kind of anti cardboard. Yeah, I can't be. Nobody. I don't love her. That's ridiculous. So they really did that threw me off there, Ruth Rosalind. But you met. Yes. Yes. So is anybody else trying to get in? Nicola's disappeared. In Ambridge, uh, Harrison has only got one in the family business. <laughs> Will Freddie be running the stables in 2040? There's some signs going in that direction, aren't there, that uh, he might be, and he will be running there in Oxley. Exactly, yes. Are you there, Nicola? Have you disappeared? Are you okay? Hopefully, Nicola will come back. Okay, so I think we should, looking at the time, I think we should move on to our next paper, which I remember when the abstract for this came in, when we put our calls for conference papers out, and Nicola and I just had goosebumps, and the response from the peer review was just absolutely unanimous, and it struck such a chord with us, uh, particularly at that time, and it turned out to be very deservedly an award-winning paper. It was absolutely phenomenal, and um, a little bit of behind the scenes chat. Our next paper, the person has proposed one for next year, which will be phenomenal. Um, and one particularly for Abby Pattinson to be alert to, because it involves a certain matriarch. Uh, Anna Marie, shall we start with your paper? Sure. Can you make me co-host so I can? I can indeed. Share. Thanks. There you go. Thank you. Yes, you're seeing it. So uh, my paper is um, about, um, so first of all, I just want to say this has been great. I really enjoyed working on this paper when I started thinking about it and it has been such a joy to go back to it. And as Kara said, I got an idea for a new paper that I'll say something about um, when we come to that point, but it, it's sort of my original version had five extra slides, which I will wait for next year. Uh, if it gets accepted, of course. So um, the idea is this is about the storyline that started two, two and a half years ago when uh, Shula decided to divorce Alistair. And at that point, I thought there was um, something to be said, uh, to a framework to be brought for Shula's reasons for divorcing Alistair. And those, that framework came, came from Iris Murdoch. Iris Murdoch a novelist of 26 very fat novels, also a philosopher less known as that, and a huge Archer fan. So what I will be doing today is I'll be giving some of the paper that I gave last year in a slightly different form, and I'll see something on the priesthood, because uh, so on the new, new developments that um, Shula has been going through since I last thought about this paper. So there we go. So the story so far. So two years ago, Shula had a sleepless night and then came the bombshell, right? She says she woke up, oh, she didn't woke up. She, she stayed awake. And then when uh, Alistair came around, even before he had his breakfast, she said she wanted a divorce. And this is what she said. She said, it's just how I feel. I just don't love you anymore. And you can sort of see why. 
Alistair was, was puzzled by this, right? And why he didn't accept her reasons in the first place. She says just, that makes it twice, that makes it seem quite unimportant. And secondly, she talks about feeling, right? It's just how I feel. Well, I think he would be justified in thinking, well, what if you feel differently uh, tomorrow? There is, a diff there is actually an interesting paper to be had on the rationality of emotions and of feelings and of their use in moral debates. And Martha Nussbaum, an American philosopher, writes extensively about that. But that's another paper I'm not giving uh, today. So Shula kept saying, it's just how I feel. I just don't love you anymore. I just how I feel. I just don't love him anymore without saying much more than that. And so she's not much believed. And I thought I was working on uh, Iris Murdoch on love at that point. And I thought, well, Iris Murdoch has something to say here and to help Shula out a bit. And in order to see what Iris Murdoch can add, um, I'll give you some of the responses that were given. So if we reduce the question to should Shula leave Alistair, everyone in the village had somebody, something to say about that. And so there's four positions I've sort of highlighted, Kenton, Elizabeth, Jill, Alistair. First two say yes, last two said no initially. And there's sort of crucial sentences that give you the philosophical position. So if we look at Kenton first, Kenton says quite quickly, if that's how you feel. And you can relate this to hedonism, though I'm sure the hedonists will be quite offended by that. But hedonists argue from feelings of pleasure and pain. So you're trying to optimize your feelings of pleasure and minimize your feelings of pain. So if you feel uncomfortable, if you don't feel happy with Alistair, for a hedonist, that's enough reason to divorce. So Kenton, in that sense, has a bit of a hedonist streak to his argument. Elizabeth, on the other hand, and Kenton has this a bit as well, is a determinist, which means that we have no say in what is happening to us at all. It's just a matter of cause and effect, cause and effect. And so you see that a bit in that she says, well, things just run their course. And you see that too, when Kenton visits Alistair on the first night, he says something like, well, this is happening to her. The interesting part of that, of course, is that it takes all the decision making away from, uh, from Shula and she's just doing, well, this is just happening to her as everything is happening to all of us. Alistair's having none of this, he says, was like a car crash where no one is responsible. Um, then comes Jill and Jill says no. And Jill really has such a fascinating way of reasoning. I discovered this week. So th that I, I got a bit sidetracked by that. What she does is she has a sort of general principle and then she goes to specific uh, elements to make her case, right? So she says, for instance, all marriages have their ups and downs. You and my, your father and me always didn't always see, case, see face to face. Therefore, but you work through it, right? So you have the general principle, but a general idea. All marriages have their have their wrong times, and that's true for my marriage. True for your marriages, you work through it. It is even more brilliant when she when she reconciles with uh, Shula because then she just had a conversation with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says, "Well, mothers love their children. That's what they do." So. Jill gets a principal, mothers love their children. She goes up to Shula and she says, I love you no matter what, right? So she again, the general principle and the particularity and, and also Shula not having a clue what's going on whatsoever. So that's going to be my next paper because I really think something's going on here. And then Alistair, the last one, 
says, well, he's very much a rationalist. So he's thinking we need to talk about this. And he says what we need to do is, and this is a bit a position that Murdoch distinguishes, is when you make a decision, what you do is you take a step back, you rationally over see at all the different positions that are there, and then you take a position, take a decision. That doesn't work. Murdoch is quite critical of that, and you can see that Alistair it doesn't work at all for Alistair, and he returned he returns to gambling and to magical thinking at some point. Now, so this is the sort of case, right? Should should I leave Alistair? Those four different positions have come through comes come through in the months following Shula's decision. But what Murdoch would say is that actually her criticism of the kind of ethics that underpins a lot of the thinking of her time is that they're asking the wrong questions. So ethics isn't about one particular situation where you have to make a decision or a judgment. That shouldn't be the focus of ethics. The focus of ethics should be all those points in between. She says that when we are making a decision or making a judgment, the die is already cast, right? It's not as if we then can take a step back. That decision has been informed by all the thinking and musing, etc., that we have done in those times between the decision. So this is what she writes. So here is Iris Murdoch in one of my favorite pictures. So you can see she died, uh, almost more than 20 years ago and was born 100 years ago. And actually there's one celebration after the other because the Sovereignty of Good was published exactly 50 years ago. And the quote from that, I think, works perfectly for Shula. This is it. Should an unhappy marriage be continued for the children, the love which brings the right answer is an exercise in justice and realism and really looking. So what does this mean? First of all, for Murdoch, love is extremely important. Uh, so she keeps saying in her early works, well, love is, um, a, love is a notion that should get, take a more central, no, uh, central place in moral philosophy, and it doesn't. And she thinks that because she doesn't think we're all this rational people. We are not that rational as some of the philosophers would like you to believe. And I would think Ambridge is an excellent illustration of that fact. So she says we're often obsessed with ourselves. She uses the term fat, relentless ego. We're often concerned with what, what hurts our ego. And that seems to be a lot of the time going on. So moral philosophy, rather than saying, focusing on decision making, should ask this question, how can we make ourselves morally better? And the answer to that comes in terms of love, it comes in terms of attention, it comes in terms of really looking, right? And she has that notion of attention from um, Simone Weil, but she also gets it from prayer as a technique. And so what she, and she also says things like, well, falling in love is a great example of how, how love can bring us out of out of our situation, out of our own sort of troubles and see the world anew, right? So that the activity of looking is incredibly important for her. And interestingly, Shula did fall in love for a moment with Phil the Builder, and that did give her an insight that it wasn't all well with her and Alistair. So this is where Murdoch is thinking about. So this loving attention is really important and we should have techniques in order to, to practice that. And so 
prayer for her is a good example, but given the fact that uh, religion is a bit on its way out or doesn't appeal to everyone, she also talks about art. And I'll just want to say something about that. This was why I was so excited last year when there was the art project. And Shula was involved with the art project. Not only has this idea of, she says, I don't love you anymore, has some support in saying, well, actually, to love or not to love is really important in who we are, in, in, in how we can make ourselves morally better. But how to practice that is by, uh, by looking at art. So I thought this was another brilliant Murdochian move from Shula, though it never got round to doing uh, much. But for instance, in one of Murdoch's earlier novels, The Bell, she has a character who goes to the National Gallery from time to that time. And then she, uh, she looks at the paintings as friends and she sort of really pays attention to those paintings. And again, you see this sort of practice of, of paying loving attention as a, as a way of, of, um, of, of having this technique of, of making yourself morally better. There's another example to show that. And I think this is where I'm sort of time, slightly updated my paper in the story of Alistair and Jim, because we had this story uh, last, year, last summer. And when, when Jim finally got to telling Alistair and Jezzer what had happened to him, there was a really moving moment when Alistair was really all there in attention for Jim, right? And he says, we're here, we're listening. He wasn't concerned with himself. He wasn't concerned with looking for revenge as Alice, as Jezzer was, but he was really paying attention to Jim and waiting for him to tell his story. And that's interesting too, because Murdoch sometimes uses the notion of imprisonment when she says, People are really obsessed with their own uh, uh, self and with their own ideas, and they're imprisoned in a way. She, she doesn't look, like using the word, but she uses that word. And so you can see, well, this, the movement of, of Shula has also liberated perhaps Alistair in a way and allowed him to see the world anew and allowed him to pay attention to his father in a very, very different way. And lastly, as I said, prayer is a great example for Murdoch. So prayer is, again, this kind of attention for her. So she says prayer is not petition. Prayer is paying attention to an object that she calls the good, that is eternal or that is transcendent, etc., etc. And this brings me nicely into um, Shula's new attempt to become a vicar. Now, first of all, Murdoch is not always straightforward when it comes to women's rights, but she was very much in favor of women priests. So when there was a lot, I think 1994, um, there was uh, the sort of question of women becoming priests. She wrote a letter saying there shouldn't be any exception. She mentions it in her last philosophical work, work, Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. And she has a fantastic conversation between two characters in her 1980 novel, um, nuns and soldiers, which um, features a nun who has just left a, um, a convent and her friend, and they talk about her desire to be a woman priest. And the friend says, "Oh, I should. They should. There should be women priests." And then the nun says, "If you disapprove of priests so much, why do you want women to be priests?" And the friend says, "Well, if there's anything going, I think women should have it too if they want it, even if it's bad. Yes." They laughed again. So 1980, Murdoch was already uh, in favor of it. And this argument is, is one that you also find 
in feminist thinkers like Michel de Duff, right? If there is something going, we shouldn't have to argue women are better at it. It should just be open for all. So murder would be okay with Shula becoming a priest as far as she is a woman. Would she be okay with Shula becoming a priest as far as she is Shula is a very different question. Um, I sort of put this out when I, I saw the invitation for this um, for this session today. I, I retweeted it and said something about that. And then one of my friends said, oh, no, she'd be a horrible priest. <laughs> lack of attention, lack of nuance, da, 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 da. And sort of, I hate Shula, basically. I am not so sure if she would be or she wouldn't be. Um, I think, so Murdoch, Murdoch novels feature a lot of, lot of priests and they're always self-doubting. They're really obsessed with ritual. Um, and they're, they're really interesting and, and difficult characters. As far as that's concerned, uh, I think Shula will do, but I think time will tell. So I'm predicting in two years time, you will have um, a lot of papers, hopefully by theologians assessing Shula's move into the priesthood. If that hasn't happened, I'm happy to come back and give Murdoch's view of Shula as a more mature priest. And that's where I ended. That was fantastic. Huge rounds of applause again. Uh, amazing, it's brilliant. I'm just enwrapped at, um, at all of that. And you really do pick them. Sheila oh, and yeah. Jill, the chats have gone <laughs> yeah. wild. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, it's, it's like therapy. I find that when I start writing about them, I like them better. So yeah, so that, yeah, I think there really is growing. Definitely, <laughs> there's definitely a proximity effect, same as when you know uh, Pete Matthews wrote the in, original paper on Linda, and we all had a bit of a Linda conversion. Now, I just uh, again, normally in my introduction, I point out the many awards that people have won, and we gave um, Dr. Altorf a pair of tweezers because we thought that she had kept it really highbrow. Um, and, and yeah, I think I cried when we talked about this car the first time. I was like, I love Iris Murdoch. I absolutely love her kind of ethics and, 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 the, and, um, and, and morality. And um, I just, yeah, I can't say enough nice things about it. What I did just want to do though, was to bring you slightly into dialogue with Jonathan because we had a paper this year um, at Reading, where Jonathan Hustler did um, So You Want to Be a, a Vicar, discussing Shula's motivation. So Jonathan, if it's not too mortifying, if you could unmute yourself. Um, and and because you worked quite carefully through in a similar way that you ended. Are you there, Jonathan? I'm here. Thank you. Nathan. Hey, hello. hello. Just any response, really? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated. And thank you very much. Um, I mean, it was interesting, the, the, um, the Murdoch priests and their obsession with ritual, ritual of, yeah. often. I mean, one of the things actually that worries me about Shula is she doesn't seem to have, with no evidence of any interest, actually, in, in what the worshipping life of the church is about, mm. uh, apart essentially from, from, uh, from being a, a, a social place where, where she meets and, and is able to satisfy some of her own, her own needs. Um, but I mean, I may just be being harsh about that. Um, I'm also a little bit, I mean, also the the um, the whole Jim story worried me a bit. Um, that at one level she appeared to be caring and considerate, and a good listening ear. Um, part of me wondered actually how inquisitive 
she was and what this was actually what actually was motivating that um mm. so that you know, as a candidate for the priesthood um she's absolutely fascinating um mm. because you know actually what she said at that bishop's advisory panel um about her spirituality and her engagement with the life of prayer i can't i can't imagine <laughs> Not unfair at all, Jonathan. You're getting a lot of nods of agreement and approval. <laughs> and so we're all slightly in love with Jonathan due to the fact that he is a Methodist uh, priest. Is it? Do you say priest? Sorry, ignorant. Um, Iris Murdoch's a Catholic, isn't she, everybody? Um, no, or have no, I just no, no, read no. that in? No, she was her? no, very much not so. She was uh, a Protestant Irish, but she, she so she was born in Dublin as a pro in a Protestant family and then moved to London when she was one years old, but always identified as Irish, did leave the church a bit. There's some, there's a, like didn't go to church at a certain point, but was completely fascinated by it. But in the 1980s, I think she became a bit of a Paisley was, uh, um, supporter, and a Thatcher supporter. So she changed from being a communist in the 1940s. Mm. Uh, she changed her political views, but she's a real, I mean, she has a real interest in Catholic priests, right? Mm. So personal friends who are Catholic priests. Gosh, that's so funny. Because I just assumed that she was Catholic because there's so many Catholics in the novels. Hang on, well, hang on. <clears throat> there are Anglo-Catholics in the novels. They're both. Hello. Hi. Hi, it's, <laughs> it's Trisha talking here. I just want to, I just want to be sure we're not going off piste here her, her in her novels they're always anglo-catholic priests right. they're not catholic priests small point of divinity there folks if <laughs> mm. yeah so yeah, church of church of Avila. to what jim said is that all right Sorry, sorry. Yes, I just couldn't. I couldn't live with us all talking about her her interest in Catholic priests with no, the I assumption that they would be Roman Catholic priests, the yeah, Anglo-Catholic yeah. priests. Okay, as you were, folks. Continue. <laughs> no, no, very good. I think it's interesting what Jim said on the uh, on the um, her the, on the sorry on the on the Jim story. So I think the same with love, right? So she says, I don't love him anymore. I mean, partly you could see this in Iris Murdoch perspective, but you could also think she's being rather selfish because she also raises it in terms of, I just what well, I need to be happy. And you think, oh. So, so I mean, to bring Iris Murdoch to her rescue is, is putting it in a nicely, slightly nicer framework than I think is justified. And being abused for not, um, not putting enough emphasis on Jonathan. He's the... He is the secretary of the Methodist Conference. So, um, very senior Methodist minister. Is that all right, chat? I don't want to, uh, to do anybody down. I think that that, 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 that interface is, is, is so interesting between um, that sort of ecumenical stripy part. Um, anybody else have a direct question? I was gonna say though, in the interest of balance, um, perhaps we should hear something positive about Shula, um, in which case we have to go to Karen Pollock, I think, yep. being the only one really that, that does have anything positive to say about Shula. Um, and I, I wondered if you wanted to, to put some, some, uh, some of your point of view across, Karen. Well, one of the things it's sorted from the chat is, <clears throat> and this came up at, at Reading, you know, people saying, Where's her spiritual life? And yet when, when Sheila said that the church must be more than social work, the reaction of the listeners was 
quite astonishingly negative. You know, when she talked about her in his spiritual life and that she felt the church was losing that, people were like, really, really didn't like it. So there's a way in which there's two things here because there's the marriage and it ending, and I still. I still get quite a cold feeling at how many people at Sheffield were like, she should sacrifice her happiness for Alistair, which is why I love Tanner's paper so much. Because it, th there was people blatantly saying that, which was quite scary. Mm. But then there's the religion stuff, and as English people, I think it wouldn't matter who it was, we would have discomfort with the public discussion of religion. Mm. That's and right. We can't separate that discomfort that goes all the way back to Henry VIII mm. um, and Shula. So she gets it doubled from us. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start on this hill of liking Shula even more. I think, I think it's because I was reminded of your paper in Sheffield as well, and, mm. and Shula sort of going against the grain, right? That, that was your paper mm. uh, with, queer, with queer theory. And I thought the step going to the church, I, I really like that in her. That she's mm. not going to be confined by, I'm 60, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. She's really doing what she wants to do. I really like that in her. It's definitely congruent with the person, I think, who annoys people but I, I think the deepest truth about this ever was from you Nicola which is people get annoyed by the Archer's character who is closest to themselves and I I think that's probably why a lot of people get very angry about Shula and probably why I despise Jill. <laughs> All right let's not, let's not just have open season I mean that would be ridiculous right? I don't like right? any of them what the hell does that say about me in that case? <laughs> You're, uh, you're, 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 you're a deeply confused woman, I think. <laughs> I think, um, I think that is why Hannah's paper is so amazing, is because using the lens of Iris Murdoch gets us away from more sort of orthodox readings, and I don't mean to upset the people, the, the faith people, but um, she has got a quite heterodox reading of ethics, and then to apply that then to Shula there is a lot of ambivalence stalking these, these questions. And frankly, um, I think she's a well-drawn character, particularly when you get to the place where we went with Charlotte Martin around this village has been constructed a certain way. And Shula arguably was the sort of, um, you know, had a favored path through it and I mean, if you remember how hideous Jill was when she wanted to leave Alistair for purely face-saving reasons. So to connect it to either, so Karen's paper was about queering Shula, as in she will, um, she will adopt a path in which she defines herself, thank you very much. This is <laughs> Gary Gilday, she's a bloodthirsty, hypocritical liar. Fine. I'm just, I just think it's, I think she's more nuanced and interesting than that. And it's interesting that she's getting a very negative read at present. And I think that uh, her decision to leave the marriage is exactly as Hannah says. It's, it's, it's a struggle and the lens of Iris Murdoch is really helpful in working through some of that. If I, if I aren't, I'm not paraphrasing kind of totally um, bluntly. It's, this is it's fascinating, isn't it? That we can, and this has been, this is what we talk about at Academic Arches, you know, the other sides of the characters and, and a deeper understanding of them. 
but still the listening of them is really really hard so i do i have a i do have a sympathy with sheila and i thought it was an amazing thing for her to do uh it is is to go no i want a divorce and i'm going to do this in my life it's fantastic um and i know a lot of women around in my circle that i i just you know think that they would they're struggling in their own way and haven't made that they haven't made that bold decision that, that um sheila has but she's a very dislikable character it's really hard to listen to her isn't it and it's just that's that's the grist to my role with sheila and that i think is the thing is that what people get out of religion i guess is the is the sort of stalking horse in this conversation right um between so you know it is ritual it is social work it is you know there, there are a lo long list of things that it is but karen's absolutely right it makes us literally sick in our mouths to discuss it so bring it you know i think this is fantastic and in oh hang on jonathan part of the question hello Part of the question is about how important self-fulfillment is. Mm. Excellent point. Do you want to come back in, Jonathan? I feel that we need to see your face again. Thank you, Vicla. <laughs> no, I, it, it, it seems to me that, that often one of the drivers uh, in any sort of vocation, and whether that's a vocation to be married or, or to priesthood or, or to anything else, actually, is, is that sense of needing the self to be fulfilled. Mm. Uh, now, it seems to me that's... that's that's actually in many ways what Murdoch is looking at in mm. her characters. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and, uh, and yet, you know, there's also that very strong sense, particularly in the Christian tradition, about how vocation is about sacrifice mm. and not about the fulfillment of the self, yeah. but about giving oneself for others and for God. It's a massive tangle, isn't it? The altruistic impulse, whether that then feeds back into selflessness or selfishness but the point is by by uh, raising the point of the self that's why and again this this is fascinating to think about hannah do you want to say anything about any of those things is it possible to kind of emphasize the self selflessly or selfishly or not or what well, does iris think what, what's interesting in iris murder when she gives examples is that they're often gendered so she often like she she has this kind of idea that the, the good examples are difficult to find. And then she says, I think the good priest, the good priest, but also the good people. And so she yeah. talks about virtuous peasants, but she also talks about, for instance, aunties or mothers of great families or something mm. like that. Right. So very insignificant people. And then mm. that's interesting for a number of reasons. Also, because like, where does she get that idea of the virtuous peasant from? That seems mm. a romantic idea from a 19th century novel rather mm. than something real. But mm. again, when you, when you relate that back to Shula, Shula isn't like that, right? She is someone, I think uh, Jonathan very right in saying she's talking about self-fulfillment a lot. And she's not talking about God. I mean, none of them are talking about God as far as I can see, which I think is very funny. Um, but I might have missed that. But I don't think she's very, or with ritual, or with sacrament, right? Like mm. Social work seems really important to her, listening to people, which is, I suppose, a very important part of it. But, but, but the religious aspects... Somebody did say I've ever heard chat, that. though. Again? You go. I was going to say, somebody did say in the chat that when she came back from her weekend and with the priesthood um somebody was speaking on her topic but from a theological point of view and they said well what point of view was Shula talking from but her own mm. <laughs> only ever talking about her own point of view. 
I'm just wondering if we've ever heard her say sacrament. I mean, I know it's, again, I, I'm willing to be humiliated, but I, I was raised Catholic, so I have that lens. And yeah, discussion. Okay, so the question, who are the faithful of Ambridge? Who, who believes in God, essentially? Who, and how do they manifest this belief through action or through, um, you know, self, whatever? Well, the name escapes me now, but uh, oh gosh, this is really embarrassing. There is a sort of virtuous peasant in, um, what's her name? Oh, Clary. Yes, exactly. Somebody says that in the chat. Yeah. And Clary's gone to the church before, hasn't she? I, I remember. And, and Jill attends yeah. um, as well. Yeah, and actually in the last year, Sheila once did the reading and we finally heard something that ha was happening in the church service that was not them chatting before or afterwards. And she yeah. did, I think about love, if I did not have love, and Jonathan can tell me where that is, I think it's somewhere in the New Testament, or something like that. Actually, the question, who, who, who has faith? None of us said Alan and Usha. Patricia <laughs> Princeton, I didn't come to any of our minds first. <laughs> and Claire Astbury, I feel that Ambridge has more holier than thou than faithful. Ow, burn. <laughs> burn. Does anybody else have, uh, have burning theological points that they wish to input into the discussion? In fact, where is Mia Fox when we need her? Because she works as lay clergy for Northumbria Chaplaincy and Newcastle University Chaplaincy. And she's our, always our go-to for a liberal Catholic, Catholic um, perspective. Yeah, I thought we were talking about God rather than Christianity. Well, hello, Trisha. Trisha, would you like to say, say more things? Because I think you've definitely got a good, good, good perspective on this. God rather than Christianity. Very important to differentiate. Trisha, can you get back in? I thought I'd had more than my fair share of airtime earlier no, on. No, please, please. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to discover my, my uh, failings in real life showing up in Zoom as well as... <laughs> Listen, no, I... opinionated women, that's not a failing in this company. <laughs> that's fine. Um, <laughs> <but no. laughs> In fact, it's the price of entry. <laughs> I do wonder if Gary wants to get some things off his chest, though. I'm worried, Gary, that you're just stuck within chat and are okay. boiling over to a frenzy with your hatred of Shula. Do you want to yes. come in in terms of our other side of the balance and really go to the extreme of Shula hatred? If you're still there. He's probably combusted. Nicola oh, Lloyd, yeah. meanwhile... This view of moral philosophy sounds more like modern Buddhism. How interesting. How I interesting. I want to say something because that's, that's right. So Murdoch was inspired by Buddhism or she called herself a fellow Christian, fellow Christian, Buddhist Christian. So, so this, is, this is inspired by Buddhism. That's absolutely Well done, Lloyd. Oh, Gary Gilday did Divinity at University. Come along, unmute yourself. Let yourself be seen, Mr. Gilday from Glasgow. Mm. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah, if we yes, could just keep it, let's keep it um, evidence-based, my dear. Not, not just... <laughs> I'll try and be polite. Um, <laughs> no, I studied divinity. I was the only person that wasn't using it as, as a training 
for a qualification to enter either to be a vicar or a priest. And I must say it was one of the most interesting, jaw-dropping, gobsmacking experiences of my life. I didn't finish the course um, because I just literally couldn't sit and be in the company of, I must say, a lot of very willfully willfully ignorant and I mean that as in refusing to learn about things rather than being ignorant I don't mean it in a pejorative sense I mean literally I could see people refusing to actually process information and after three months of learning about a particular subject actually saying before exams what is it they believe again they're literally saying what is it they believe just give me the bullet points and I'll just make something up and literally without fail, it, it was, it was eye-opening. So that's my experience of people, and it was, the vast majority were women wanting to enter the church in some role. Um, just, just bizarre, but very interesting. All very odd people. <laughs> but then they were there for a reason, and I was there just for learning's sake. So who's to say who was the oddest? Very good. Very good. Very good. I'm mindful of time now. Are there any last questions or points that anybody wants to make before we say our goodbyes?